We are starting the book of Philippians today. We'll work through it uh, over the course of the next few months and consider what it has to say. If you like to talk about joy, Philippians has a lot to say about joy. If you'd like to talk about peace, and who wouldn't like to have peace in their life? Philippians has a lot to say about it. If you'd like to talk about thanksgiving, who doesn't like to be thankful? Being thankful means uh, there's reasons to be thankful and blessings. Who doesn't enjoy that? Philippians has a lot to say about thanksgiving. And so joy and thanksgiving and peace, that sounds like a recipe for a, a good book. What you're going to find is that those are something like spokes on a wheel and they point to one source, the Lord Jesus. At one place, Paul says this, for me to live is Christ. And he says more than that. I'm going to leave you hanging. But that really is what Paul's point is. If you would like joy, you won't find it seeking for joy. You'll find it in Christ. If you want peace, you won't find it just seeking for peace. You'll find it in Christ. If you want to learn thanksgiving, you won't find it in your circumstances. In just counting your blessings, you will find thanksgiving in being related to and knowing the living, risen, glorious Savior at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so, if I were going to title the series, it would be To Live as Christ. And that's what I hope that we can see as we study this book of Philippians. Now, there's more that will unfold as we go. Uh, this first section is Paul simply introducing his letter and uh, wanting to tell this church a little about himself, though they knew him, and a little about his purposes for them and what he expects of them. And, of course, it helps us understand what he thinks and expects of us. And really, since the Lord inspired Paul to write these words, it is the Lord's expectations for his church. Before we begin reading, let's pray together that God would bless the time we spend in his word. Oh, Father, the, the, the church belongs to you. It's your idea. It's your work in the world. And uh, we're glad to be a part of it. And so we pray, would you encourage us in trusting you to work in your church and to see what you're doing? Would you help us see the kind of work you are doing in us and how we could respond to it? Would you give us eyes to understand, faith to receive, and hearts that are full of repentance that we might obey your word and be transformed by it? Would you cause your will uh, to be done in us as it is done in heaven? Through your word and by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Philippians 1, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. This is God's word. It is completely true and utterly trustworthy. Uh, 
You know the famous saying by Groucho Marx. I uh, don't want to be part of a club that would have me as a member. Now, it's clever and witty and full of some interesting insights as it uh, expresses something dealing with how we think of ourselves and what we know about ourselves. And there must be something wrong with a club that would have me as a member. That sounds about right. And uh, just so that you know, he, he wasn't saying that about the church. He was saying about the Friars Club. But either way, uh, that was his saying. It's been applied to the church on many occasions because the church is just that organization that will take all comers. Open arms, welcoming. Uh, Ricky Jones, former campus minister at Mississippi State, now pastor of a church he planted in Tulsa, and one of the pastors to which I like to listen regularly, uh, says of the church, it's more inclusive than AA. At least at Alcoholics Anonymous, you've got to be an alcoholic to get in. At the church, all are welcome. Regardless of what's going on in your life, regardless of your past, regardless of what you bring to the church, all are welcome. It should be the most inclusive organization in all the world. That sounds pretty good. And yet you find that the church is getting some pretty serious mixed reviews by plenty of people. Uh, one of my friends from college, uh, with whom I keep up chiefly on Facebook, is a Christian, a believer in Jesus. And yet uh, he said uh, this week, I've been burned too many times by the so-called Christian church. Never again. He's given up on the church. Now, how does that happen? If the church is this big, welcoming organization, how does someone want to give up on it who's a Christian? And the reviews of the church outside the church aren't much better. Uh, in the article, it went in the newsletter for the church in the Messenger this week. The, the title of the article, which was written by uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, professor and, and the president of RTS Charlotte, Reformed Theological Seminary in Charlotte, says, is the church uh, intolerant haters? Intolerant haters. That's the review of the church from outside. Well, his response is, the charges aren't new. The first and second century church had the same charges leveled against them to be intolerant haters. But is the church really known for what we are against? Is that the way we want to be known? Is there something that's kind of messed up that people who are Christians are saying I don't want to be a part of the church that those who are outside look on it and say haters and intolerant and rigid and find it easy to, to spit upon the church what is this church who's in it and why do people see it this way with such widely uh, different views one who proclaims its inclusiveness another who says too rigid too intolerant too something that I can't be a part of it. I don't fit. How can you be inclusive and not fit? Those are some good questions. Philippians and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to say, here's what he expects to see in the church. I want you to see the four things he expects to find in the church. He knows it's there. This is a church he started. He wants you to find saints, servants, partners, and perseverers. I don't know if that last one's a word, but you'll have to take it. Saints, servants, partners, and perseverers. How about saints? There in verse 1, 
to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. The book of Philippians is a letter. It's a just that kind of thing. You written down, put in in a secure place, sent by messenger, and carried to be read to the church at Philippi. And he says, as letters would have in the uh, days of Paul in the New Testament, he follows the form of a, a good Roman letter. You say who you are, you say who you're writing to, and then you give them a greeting before you launch into the body of the letter. Perfect form. This would have been something teachers could have used and said, this is what a letter is supposed to look like. His two line. Who's he writing to? To all the saints. In Christ Jesus, who are at Philippi. Now, when we use the word saint, we typically think of someone who has achieved particularly good moral standing. We think of the person who constantly goes out of their way to help someone else who's in need. Fixes meals, checks on uh, people who are lonely. uh, Who, you know, imagine a person who spends every Saturday going out to mow other people's lawns who are otherwise not able to do it. You would think, man, that person is really generous, really kind. They are a saint. That's what we mean when we say saint. Someone who has achieved a certain level of of good conduct. When Paul writes to this church, he's writing to all the saints at Philippi. And if he, it's a really odd thing for him to say to all the ones at the church who've achieved a certain level of good conduct. After all, he's going to later on start kind of correcting their conduct. You know, you're fighting over petty things. You have vain and selfish conceits. That doesn't sound like a person who is saintly. Vain conceit would be the opposite of saintly. If you go back and read in Acts 16, you see the beginning of this uh, church. There was a woman named Lydia who believed in the message that Paul was preaching. And Lydia was wealthy and had some resources. And so she provided for the ministry of Paul, gave sacrificially, probably hosted the church in her own house, risking her reputation in the community. And we look at that and we go, see, saint. Also in the church, more than likely, as Paul was around town in Philippi trying to reason with people and preach about the gospel, there were uh, these men who owned a slave, a little girl who was possessed by a demon. And, And that demon did stuff in this girl that made her something of a circus attraction. And so the the owners would sell the opportunity to see her perform and make money off this girl. Paul saw it and he turned and he rebuked the demon in the name of Jesus and the demon under Jesus' authority was forced to leave. You presume this girl, now rescued from the demon, is rescued in her heart from the sin and brought to know Jesus She's a saint. There was a a jailer because when when Paul uh, was in the town and the people who'd seen their circus attraction be made normal, she could no longer earn the money. And so they incited a mob to get Paul and his partner in the ministry there, Silas, arrested. They were brought to jail and held under lock and key with the jailer who was there. And in the evening, though they had been beaten and whipped and they were in pain and in prison, they sang hymns together. 
And as they sang, the jail itself began to quake. There was an earthquake and it broke free the prisoners. The jailer, knowing what would happen to him when the prisoners escaped, took his sword out to fall on it. And Paul stopped him. And he said, we haven't left yet. And they taught him the gospel. And the jailer believed he's a saint. You should know something about that jailer. The jailer was a guy who, after Paul taught him the gospel, began to wash Paul's wounds from the beating he had taken. Which is to say that Paul needed medicine and treatment when he got to the prison, but the jailer didn't care. That's the kind of person that's in the Philippian church that's a saint. In the city of Philippi, which was named for uh, Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, uh, it was a great city in the Roman Empire. And it was made great in part because after Julius Caesar was assassinated, Augustus Caesar and Mark Antony led a force to uh, battle against uh, Brutus and Cassius. And they met on a field just outside Philippi. And there, uh, Augustus Caesar won the battle. And in joy over their victory, they gave uh, the city of Philippi status as a, a Roman colony. Which means if you were born there, if you lived there, you were a Roman citizen. And they took that with great honor. It was such that there was no synagogue in Philippi. Now that, that m might not matter much to us in ordinary hearing, but here's what that means. If there was no synagogue in a city of that size, it meant that they couldn't get one there. And the rules were that you had to have ten Jewish men in order to have a synagogue. In other words, the city of Philippi, as great as it was, as significant as it was, had fewer than 10 Jewish families. That means that people who are familiar with the Old Testament, people who are familiar with the ways of God, were almost completely absent from the city. And so everyone who was a member of the church of Philippi would have been people who just until recently had worshipped the emperor and called him Lord and Savior. They would have been the people who worshipped in the Roman pantheon of gods. And they had been brought underneath the one God only recently. And Paul says to them, with all your pagan history, you are saints. Now, I've tried to belabor this point as much as I can. What I want you to get is becoming a saint is not an achievement. It's a gift. That's why after he addresses them, his first words to them are grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You aren't saints in yourselves. You are saints in Christ Jesus. God gives the title of saint long before we are fit for it. He gives the status of saint long before we are fit for it. That word saint comes from the word sanctuary or sanctified. And he says to the saints, to the holy ones, to the sanctified ones, to the ones that God says, you are mine. That's what holy means. Belonging to God. In one sense, anyway. He says to these people, despite your past, despite whatever is, is characteristic of you, you belong to me. You are more mine than you are a citizen of the Roman Empire or the city of Philippi. You are more mine than you are a member of your family. You are more mine 
than anything else. Your identity is saved. And God gives it. This means to you, saints, if you are trusting in Christ Jesus, you are holy to God. He claims you. He says you are mine. You belong to me more than you belong to the United States. More than you belong to Mississippi. More than you belong to Louisville. He says you are saints. You are more the family of God than you are the family who gave you your last name. You are more gods than anything else. And he gives it to you long before you're fit for it. You know, part of the problem people have with the church is, is they have all the wrong expectations. They hear that there are saints there and so they expect to be these great people who are rich in all the, the good works and morality. People who are outside the church think religion is chiefly this, this the techniques of self-help to make you a better person. That's what religion is supposed to do. And so if Christians come along and say, Christ is the only way, the church is the only way, then they come in and they say, I want to come in and see how the only way makes you so much better than everybody else. And what they come in and find is, man, it's really a bunch of sinners. People who do it wrong. People who speak unkind words. People who are still selfish. Who have vain conceits and petty concerns. They come in and find the warts and the flaws that were there when we got here. And say, I thought you were saints. But you see, religion isn't about, as its chief goal, making you a slightly nicer, or even a lot nicer, or kinder person. It is chiefly about God saying, you are mine. You belong to me. You are my saint. I've established that name for you and I've given you that status. You didn't earn it. It came by grace, by a gift from God. But it is true that God doesn't intend to leave you there. He provides servants to help you move on. Verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. You'll find in some of your Bibles, there's a little note mark there. said that you could translate that word servants, bond servants, or even slaves. There are lots of words for servants that they could have used. Most of them describe someone who's an employee. Someone who has a contract with a, an owner of a, of a field or a property and works for them by contract. Others who are day laborers. You'd show up that day, you'd work that day, you'd get paid that day, you'd go on your way. And you just found whatever work you could find. These servants were all free to look for the next best thing. Free to go to the next owner. Whoever would give them better pay or a better set of circumstances. They were free. But the word that Paul and Timothy used to describe themselves is a bond servant. One who is bound to his master. They could be bound to them usually by misfortune. Perhaps they accrued a debt they couldn't pay, and so they became a slave to pay off their debt. And the person who was their master could make them work off the debt or could sell them to someone else to gain the debt. You were somewhere between property and person. And so when Paul describes his relationship to Jesus, he uses that term, I'm bound to him as a slave. 
I'm obligated and I'm not free to go somewhere else. I've, I've lost my agenda and now I only live for His. I'm not free to set the, the, the terms of my own life. I'm obligated to Jesus Christ. You would see Him come up with that in a real practical way in just a couple of verses. He says, I know I'm at the end of my life, at the end of chapter 1. I know I'm near the end and I'm anticipating the day when I will go and I will see and be with Jesus and it's great and I want it. But I also know that if I stay here, then it means I get to serve you longer. And I am certain that's what God's going to do. I want one thing, but God wants something else. And I will go with God. When Paul is saying all this, he's writing probably from a Roman prison. Guarded by guards, quite literally chained to a Roman guard. 24 hours a day. It's not my life anymore. I'm not a slave of Rome. I'm a slave of Jesus. And he says that's true in your church as well. Because he says I'm not just writing to the saints, but also to the overseers and the deacons. Deacons there is the office of the diaconate, but the word deacon means servant. And overseers, which would be something like the elders of our church, the overseers were called to serve the church by teaching it and caring for it. It's what you find in Acts 20 and 1 Peter 5. There's this sense of serving the church by caring for everyone's soul. And the deacons caring for all of the physical needs in the church and for mercy. And so God had given Paul and Timothy to serve the church. He had given officers in the church to serve the church. And here's what he's saying. There is one place where God has given to you who are members of the church, people who are going to help you move from the title of saint to the experience of it. It's the one place God has said, I've given the resources for you to grow in who you are. I provided the servants that you need to equip you and to shape you and to grow you. A quick word to the officers of the church. I want you to hear what Paul is calling you. You are servants of God's people. Calling you to care about their lives so that they can grow into the saint they were made to be. Now, the church is the one place equipped to help you grow as a saint, as one who belongs to God. But every church is so flawed. Some churches tend to meddle too much, set up too many rules, be too strict about things, and, and try to sort of rule over and govern people's lives in ways that God never intended. And it feels oppressive. Uh, there's a, a great, awful story going on right now, unfolding, of, uh, of, of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, where the authors have, have, have led with a real heavy hand They've been kicked out from the organization they were in, calling them to repent and to loosen up. That's an extreme case, but it can happen anywhere. On the other hand, there are plenty of, of churches where you could come in and be anonymous. You could do your own thing. You might wander off into sin and idolatry for a long time and no one would even know or care. 
You could have either of these extremes or somewhere in the middle, but we tend to be weak one way or the other. You have churches who are absolutely committed to being as precise and perfect in doctrine and guarding the truth with every fabric of their, every, every piece of their being. And others who say the only thing that matters is that we live out the truth and we look more and more like Jesus. And it tends to be in churches that you, you focus on one and are weak on the other. Churches have their weaknesses. And in spite of the weaknesses of, of the church, of the culture in the church, in spite of the weaknesses of the officers, this is the one place God has said he's going to work. The one place where he says, I put my servants. It's where you can grow. And he calls you not just to be served, but to serve yourself. It's a partnership. Look at verse 5. He says, I thank my God, verse 3, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul did not see the Philippian church as, you know, I'm doing the ministry. Y'all are the cheerleaders. I'm doing the ministry. Y'all are the ones who receive the ministry. He said, no, we're partners. We do the ministry together. The vision that Paul has for the church, the vision that God has for the church is not officers and pastor do ministry, the rest of us do our own thing and receive it. But rather it's a calling that together, you and I and everyone else, we are partners to walk arm in arm, to support one another, to minister to one another. That the whole of the church is the way the ministry happens. This means that you are called to receive ministry from each other and to give it to each other. To say, I know that the church cannot be what God intended unless I am living out the gospel with each other, with other people. The church cannot be healthy unless I am myself contributing to it. We're partners. We're partners in this gospel endeavor. Oh. You know what, what? What if the health of the church depends on officers who are flawed, on church cultures that are flawed, and on partners who are flawed? Verse 6, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Paul's confidence wasn't in how excellent the officers of the church would be. Paul's confidence was not in how efficient the partnership in the gospel that the church experienced. His confidence was not in his ability to preach with eloquence and power, but rather in a God who began the work and who would complete it and would carry it the whole way. His confidence was that God says, but I work in the church. And a God who says, I know how to get you from the name of saint to the full experience of saint. I know how to make you holy. And the God who initiated this rich grace and peace that he gives to you is the God who says, 
If I gave it to you on the first day, I'm going to carry it all the way through, day after day, until it is completed, brought to its full fruition. I want you to understand that my friend, who's sort of giving up on the church, he's really hurt, really frustrated by the sins he encountered in the church, but he's also really shooting himself in the foot. He's removing himself from the one place that God has said, I'll keep working. Now, I'm telling you all this because it's what Philippians says, but here you are in the church. A little bit like preaching the choir. Man, am I glad I'm here. I think the day might be coming for probably most of you when you experience the sin of others in the church. When you feel what... Paul calls of the Philippians the vain conceits and the petty concerns and the little conflicts that hurt. I want to urge you upon this vision that Paul gives you for the church and the work of God in it. Never give up. Because the church is made of those who persevere, who begin and go until the day of Jesus. Your perseverance might feel like a lot of work, but I want you to know that what Paul says is it's the the God who began a good work in you who's upholding it, who's who's providing for your perseverance, who's causing you to make it all the way to the end. That there is a, a sovereign God who will give you all that you need to keep on enduring, to keep on enduring in the face of any obstacle. In the prayer... I talked about those beloved Christians in Iraq who are being beheaded because they are Christians. They're given a chance to recant. Just recant your faith and walk away. And they will not. Because the God who began a good work in them will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And I want you to know that the God who supports them supports you in the church saints and servants and partners and those who persevere because God is at work let's pray Father in heaven we are completely dependent upon you to carry us to completion but you will hallelujah give us faith that we could trust in you And that we could join in this church as saints and partners and servants to the very end for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.